I'm Monty Hellman, and uh, you're listening to Film Wax Radio. My name's Adam Shartoff. The name of the show is Film Wax Radio, episode number 510 of the podcast. I'm recording this on Sunday, September 23rd, uh, to be posted on September 24th, my birthday. It's one of those times where we just have a lot of uh, guests and a lot of um, great segments, and so I'm putting out a couple of episodes a week for a little while. Anyway, this is a great episode. Uh, we have Eugene Hernandez on this episode. And Eugene is, let's go back a drop here. Um, I was a camp counselor after being a camper in this uh, in a camp called Camp Thoreau many years back. And when I was a camp counselor, one of my campers was named Mark, Mark Rabinowitz. And Mark and I lost touch after the, uh, one of my, was going to be the 80s, I guess as does happen for like 20 years. Our lives went about their way when camp ended. Some reason or other, life brought us back together. Both lived in New York City at the time, and uh, after a long hiatus, we met up. And it turns out Mark was in the film world. I think I was still in the music world, in the industry. I don't know. I don't remember. But I was certainly, uh, if, it, if I was, it was the end of it. And... uh I had already had this interest. Mark was a um, was the founder of Indie, one of the founders of IndieWire with Eugene, and so they were partners at the time. Uh, when I met Eugene, time has passed; they've gone their different ways. Neither are involved with IndieWire in any direct fashion. Mark is going to be, I believe, coming up uh, on, an, on a future episode of the podcast. But Mark had a um, a blog, and he still, I believe, he still might called The Rabbi Report, and um, so anyhow, I would write for him, and I started writing about film, and he eventually got me, uh, it probably was right after we started, and he got me a badge for the New York Film Festival. This had to be about 12 years ago, and um, I've been going since every year, and I'm going right now. I'm going to see uh, a bunch of films this week for the New York Film Festival. So all that had to do with Mark and Eugene, but the point of the matter is that's how I met Eugene Hernandez originally. Eugene was co-founder of IndieWire and then uh, eventually left uh, IndieWire, uh, I don't know, some 16 years later to join the Film Society of Lincoln Center with their digital initiatives. He's now the deputy director of the society, and he is on this episode to talk about his past and his present uh, to talk about IndieWire years and to talk about his Film Society years and the New York Film Festival, which is coming up in just a matter of days. The New York Film Festival will be running from September 28th through October 14th, almost entirely at the uh, Lincoln Center campus, as it normally would. But I understand that uh, the new Barry Jenkins film, If Beale Street Could Talk, is going to have a screening at uh, the Apollo which is not typical for the New York Film Festival to have an off-campus screening like that, but nevertheless, nevertheless, they are going to. 
the opening night film is uh, The Favorite, which is uh, directed by the great uh, Yorgos Lanthimos. Uh, their centerpiece film is Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, and uh, they close the festival with the new Julian Schnabel film, At Eternity's Gate. Uh, I mean, there's uh, dozens more films, um, and there are various seg- uh, categories uh, from the world of cinema. Check out FilmLink, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C dot org slash NYFF2018. Or just Google the New York Film Festival and get all the details and tickets. They're all available right now. And then uh, after that, I'm going to play the uh, conversation I recently had with the uh, Mexican filmmaker Alonso Ruiz Palacios regarding his new film, Museo, which is currently in theaters. Uh, so first, let's go into my conversation with Eugene Hernandez from the Film Society of Lincoln Center here on Film Wax Radio. My vision is closer to the reality of the world. I can make people feel what it's like to be alive. Baby, I can't wait Sometimes you feel that people forget. I have never obstructed justice. Don't get sore. I'm not getting sore, but just remember who's boss around here. If you like the movie, please tell a friend, tell a friend. Tell a friend. Movies, those are messages. There was something about this that was so powerful, it was almost overwhelming. Test. Adam, how does this sound? Sounds good. You sound good. I can, thank you, Eugene. Yeah, I've been to two, so far two press readings for the New York Film Festival, which uh, takes place... At least at this point, well before the festival begins, right? The P&I screenings. It's interesting because, um, yes, the screenings start two weeks prior. But as far as I'm concerned, the first day of press screenings is the first day of the festival. Yeah. Which makes it a really long, an even longer festival. But it's fine. Yeah. So the festival's begun. Shall I improperly use the word gestation? (laughs) (laughs) It has a very long gestation. It's just a very long experience in a good way. Yeah. So I'm going to also say, pardon if I'm, I have a little bit of a, uh, a little cough thing going on, a little, little itchy throat. I've got water so, here for you. Thank you. Fresh Film Society water. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like from the pure mountain stream of, of, of the Film Society. There's like a Lincoln there. Center stream. It, well, there is a pool yeah. across on the campus. Yeah, we're not using that water. <laughs> well, speaking of which, uh, this is not in the festival, so I don't know why I would bring it up, but I did see the new uh, Michael Moore the other day. Yeah, and I uh, we had it here. Did you see it here the other night? No, I was invited. Yeah. So thanks for that. I know you personally invited me, I but did. and then I screwed up, screwed it up, and I actually showed up. I was in the on the airport side already, but I was at something, and I said, oh, I gotta go. I I gotta make the premiere. I want to go, and then you know, and it was the next night. I just misread. It happens, you know. But I, it, it's I a film so actually, and I couldn't. Which, actually, a film we were tracking for the festival, and oh, Michael has yeah. a history with the festival, and we would have loved to have it at the festival. 
And there was a moment earlier in the summer where Kent was talking to Michael about this, about the film. And the same thing happened with Reversing Row, actually, um, Annie and Ricky's film. Oh, is that their new film? Um, and so there's, there's there's just a couple films, and it happens every year, where there's films that are, that are you know, kind of on track to play at the festival. And then business happens and <clears throat> takes them in another direction. So yeah. in the case of Michael's film and in the case of Reversing Row... Um, both were films that, that we would have loved to have in the festival, but we ended up doing something with them before because uh, right. we needed to accommodate their release dates. Makes sense. And, you know, as a postscript, Kent did talk to Michael but, um, in front of, at the Alice Tully Hall for that premiere. Yeah. So I, I really did want to make it, but I couldn't. Uh, anyway, but I did see so far two screenings, even though the plan was to see far more than that already because it's day three. This yeah. is day three. But I did see... Uh, American Dharma yesterday. Yeah. Errol Morris, his yeah. new documentary about Steve Bannon. That was that was really uh, a pleasure. And and then I saw. I have to remember what I went into. Oh, Alex's film, Alex Ross Perry's yeah, new film, First Smell. Yeah, right. I was there. So, and I really wanted to go see yesterday. I've been dying to see the other side of the wind. I know it's going to be crazy. I have a lot of like anticipation of what it's going to be like. I, yeah. I don't think I'll be disappointed because I kind of can from all the you know, sort of information I've been tapping well, into. If you're interested and up for it and your schedule allows, see it on the see it on the second day of the festival, the second full day of the festival. Well, I went... Uh, on, I think it's playing Saturday the... It's Saturday the 29th, and it'll be an amazing screening in Alice Tilly Hall, so just come see it then. I will, yeah. It's going to have two... Like most things, it's going to have two screenings throughout the festival. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Looking at my calendar to make sure I don't give it, give any wrong information, but it's playing it... Yeah, 2.15 on the 29th. Okay. Very good. Nice prologuing there. But let's talk about you a little bit. I feel bad. This is your first, It's taken this long just to have you on this podcast for as long as we've known each you've other. Had, you've had a good, uh, a good run of, other, of my colleagues on the podcast over the years. So it's true, but you've been... I have been, no problem. How many years now turn. have you been here? Uh, this will be eight years. Really? I know. I just saw the look on your face. That's how That's... I feel, too. Eight years. Wow. Yeah. I thought you were the kid. More than half of the time that I that I was at IndieWire, I've now been at the Film Society, which is it's crazy to me too. Eight years, yeah, it's really something. Uh, well, you brought up IndieWire. What's your relationship to that uh, newsletter? <laughs> that little newsletter, that little <laughs> yeah. newsletter that no one reads anymore. <laughs> no, I mean they're doing great. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm one of the founders of IndieWire, and I still have some really close friends who work there, and I talk to them all the time, and they ask me questions or for guidance ever so frequently mm-hmm. every so every so often i should say not mm-hmm. that often but um no i mean i'm happy to um, as as one of the as one of the proud parents of indiewire i'm you know thrilled to, to to just be supportive and and encouraging and you know the publication has grown and expanded so dramatically since you know since we first met when we were a much smaller effort a much smaller entity um but you know We'd sold the company to Steve Case and Ted Leonsis in 2008. Mm-hmm. And then um, a couple of years ago, it was sold again to right. Jay Penske. It's another part of the Penske Media family right alongside Variety and Deadline. And it's so fascinating because when we started IndieWire in the mid-90s, we really modeled ourselves after sort of... It was. I always used to say it was kind of a, a hybrid, a mix between Variety and Filmmaker Magazine. Was sort of the that's where we were trying to hit somewhere in between there, and I never, 
absolutely ever. Uh, Mark Rabinowitz, one of the co-founders, and I could have never predicted or imagined that um, that someday in the future this publication that we created, which was a small newsletter, a small email newsletter at the beginning, would would be a sister publication to Variety. I mean, it's just um, yeah, it would be it was unthinkable at the time, but right. but now I mean they're doing great. Uh, James Israel, who I worked with, Brian Brooks, and I worked with for a long time at IndieWire. Uh, is the publisher, and he's been there uh, ever since. And um, they're doing great. They've expanded their editorial. They're doing television. I mean, it's just it's a it's a much bigger publication, and they're doing really well within 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 PMC. Mm-hmm. Uh, tremendously successful. Right. No. So. It, yeah. And I just wonder, like, who you thought your readers were when you started it. Mm-hmm. What was the yeah. audience? What was the audience then? Like you're talking about now. Obviously, I'm going to just do some, some math. It sounds like it's about. We had your 20th anniversary not too long ago, so it's got to be in the early to mid 20 years uh, back. That yeah, yeah. So it. we started, um, and it was it. When I say we, it was myself, Mark Rabinowitz, and Sherry Barner. Mm-hmm. The intended audience at the time, and this was 1995, uh, when we had a company called Eyeline. It's a company that we'd had together, and then we started IndieWire the next year. The intended audience was filmmakers and industry. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, we started with those two components. And when I say started, we really just began writing content and sending it out via email. Right. Um, there was no uh, organized or really structured business plan, <laughs> although we worked with some really mm-hmm. great business people. Carol Martesco, who was the founder and publisher of Filmmaker Magazine, mm-hmm. got involved very early on. Uh, Brian Clark, who was the head of GMD Studios, got involved very early on and helped us kind of establish kind of a business structure um, just to sort of do the the day-to-day work, build a website, promote. Um, We never had a budget for marketing, but to promote within festivals and really make connections. The initial concept was actually to be more of a, although we didn't know it at the time, kind of a social network for independent filmmakers and people who worked in independent film. So that was the audience. It was it was folks we met at film festivals and this notion that you would you'd go to film festivals, you'd go to Sundance or, you know, a couple other festivals, and you'd see you'd see folks there, and then you wouldn't see them till either the next festival, the LA Film Festival or South by Southwest, uh, Toronto. Um, but there was no real way to kind of stay connected. Uh, after the festival ended. So you'd go and have these amazing experiences at a festival every night, hanging out, seeing movies, going to parties, and then it ended. Yeah, it's interesting because then, and we should also remind people this was before social media, when yeah. you, at least those first years, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, no, absolutely. I mean, the the fact that there is social media was no doubt played some component in, in its expansion, but... No doubt. I mean, I think that the, the original... <laughs> No worries. The original concept was really a social network before we knew what a social network was. And what I mean by that is we imagined when we were conceiving of this thing called Eyeline and eventually IndieWire, we, we imagined this this network of almost like we call them bureaus or hubs in different parts of the country. Los Angeles, New York, Austin, Seattle, uh, Miami, yeah. all over Chicago, anywhere around the country where there was a where there was a film community a film community yeah. an art house community an independent filmmaking community sure there was a concentration in New York and there was some stuff happening in LA but there was 
there was always amazing stuff. I say always, I mean like from the you know late '80s to now. There's always been a strong community of filmmaking happening in Austin or in Seattle or you know so many parts of the country. So the idea was to create a way that these filmmakers and people who work in film in different parts of the country could connect with each other. We didn't have the tools. We had the ideas, but we didn't have the tools for creating that. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously, Facebook does that really well mm-hmm. and has done that very well. But before that, MySpace and before that, Friendster. Mm-hmm. Um, so w- when we were creating IndieWire and iLine, we relied on AOL as kind of the the platform in which we would connect with folks. Uh, I remember one... Um, I think it was like Memorial Day weekend of 95. I spent the entire weekend in my apartment here in New York searching on America Online for anyone who had independent film or indie film in their profile. Mm-hmm. You could create profiles on AOL. Right. Um, and trying to gather as many email addresses, AOL addresses, as I could. Mm-hmm. And I think I ended up with like 250 or so. Mm-hmm. And later that summer in July, when we sent out our very first issue of IndieWire on email, I just emailed it to those 250 people, people who I knew were interested in independent film or indie film, and introduced, introduced this idea to them and said, hey, we're starting this thing. It's, it's a way to connect mm-hmm. um, with each other. We go to festivals. We write coverage. We, 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 we uh, track the news of independent film. And at this moment in the mid-90s, Variety would write a couple of articles about Sundance at the end of the festival. Filmmaker would write a festival dispatch after mm-hmm. the festival had ended, but it was in print, so it would be like a couple months later, a couple issues later, and they were quarterly, and they are a great magazine. Our notion was that there would, that there would be an opportunity to create content every single day. More real-time, in other yeah. words. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the downside of that, we realized by day two, was that it's every single day. <laughs> and uh, it was an ambitious effort, but I think it, I think it worked. And I, think, I remember having this conversation with Mark Rabinowitz about the fact that we had created this daily, and there was uh, a couple of other folks that helped us, and we were just, we were sort of daunted by the notion that we were going to have to do this we were going to have to do this every day. Right. But there was a, a great, there was a guy named Roberto Casada Darden who created an it's email awesome. newsletter yeah. Yeah, <laughs> called Indie. Uh-huh. And he had been, and it was like a, a newsletter that he had created around the same time. And he was kind of folding that. And we brought him on to help us kind of energize this. And, yeah. and by day two or three, it started getting forwarded around, started collecting email addresses and and we realized that we were on to something but um but the intended audience to go back long-windedly back to your original question was really just it was meant it was it was conceived to be focused on independent filmmakers and people who work in independent film same audience i I think i've been kind of tapping into absolutely yeah i had no idea either by the way i'm just it just i realized it doing it like oh this is my audience why am i thinking it's going to be anyone else it's I mean, it's some film lovers, but it's by and large. I know my audience is primarily industry people and filmmakers. Well, I think which is I, great. I think that what social me- what social networks allow mm-hmm. us and social media allows more broadly now is the ability to actually be precise and specific mm-hmm. about the kind of content we create. We yeah. do that here at the Film Society. It's what you do with your podcast. What we've been doing 
when I, what we were doing when I was at IndieWire. But now Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and other social platforms allow us to find those networks of people wherever they may be. Right. And sure, IndieWire is, is reaching a broader audience uh, of, you know, of even an even wider uh, audience of, of film fans. And that's kind of the, the other component of coverage that was, that's been added, that was mm-hmm. added when we were there as well, when I was there. But for content or programming that's created for a, a more specific audience, mm-hmm. we can rely on these social networks and social media to, to directly find that audience, which was, it was a lot harder. I mean, you sure. go on AOL right. and search people's profiles, but <laughs> yeah. but uh, there's a there's a little more a little bit more of a, uh, a robust way to do that now. Oh yes. So you were brought onto the uh, film society in around I guess around 2010. Mm-hmm. What was the, your the function? Uh, I mean, was it to, since you're coming from a kind of a media background at this point, and what was your the initial role that you were meant to play? Um, a woman by the name of Rose Quo, who I met on the film. Festival circuit. Yeah, right. She was running AFI Fest for for a while and working with a number of film festivals. And she, the she became yeah. the executive director here mm-hmm. at the Film Society. And she reached out to me. That uh, she came on in the summer of 2010, and she reached out to me. She, we, we were friends from the festival circuit, and she said um, she wanted to show me. She wanted to give me a tour, and. Um, Put on my hard hat, went across the street from where we are to the now, film center. to the to what would become the film center yeah. on 65th between Broadway and Amsterdam, and the Eleanor Bunin Monroe Film Center hadn't opened yet. It was a year ahead of uh, of opening, and we walked through the space, mm-hmm. and she just showed it off, and it was really impressive. And at that conversation, she said, "I would love to have you." come work at the film society and create and lead our digital efforts. The organ, this organization for much of its life was a rather analog one. I'll tell you in a moment, uh, an example of how analog when we talk about the New York film festival, mm-hmm. um, but it's a great example of how much has evolved at this organization. But the organization was, was relatively analog, had, had a terrific start of a social media presence. A woman by the name of Amanda McCormick, had done some amazing work here with very little resources and really a, a really um, persistent and smart approach and started building, had kind of laid the foundation and started uh, the building blocks of what would be a much bigger uh, effort in, in later years. Uh, but Rose asked me to come in and, and try to accelerate the organization's growth on the digital side. In walking around the space, I was actually more intrigued and turned on by the analog side, the fact that the organization was about to open a brand new film center, a $38 million um, film center with two new movie theaters, um, a small amphitheater, a restaurant, cafe. But I knew that that space, the the physical space, uh, and I felt strongly that the physical space could actually not only connect to to hopefully a new and bigger audience for the organization, but also in parallel with an emphasis and an investment on the digital side could really lay the foundation for the organization for the organization's next chapter mm-hmm. really and that was in July that we first spoke and I didn't leave IndieWire until November it took me a few months to to I wasn't looking for a job so it took me a few months to to figure out 
it didn't take me long to figure out that I wanted to do this. It took me a while to figure out how to do it and whether it was the right time mm-hmm. to um, to take off from IndieWire. And did you have a sense that IndieWire was on a trajectory that as well at that time? In oh, abs- I felt I felt that IndieWire was uh, absolutely poised for an important next chapter for itself. My question to myself and to my colleagues at the time was whether I should be a part of that or whether it was time to pass the baton. And I and I, I struggled with the with that with that notion because again I wasn't looking for a job, but the opportunity came and I was and the film society is very meaningful to me and, and always has been as long as I've been in New York. It was the first place I discovered the first cultural institution, the first real like film place, film home that I discovered when I, when I moved to New York and I live, I live nearby and I worked when I moved to New York, I worked across the street uh, at ABC television. So when I started coming here in the, in the early nineties, it just became an immediate home for me. And so if I, if I ever were to leave IndieWire, this would have been the place that I would want to go probably this or like Sundance, which, you know, has given me a lot personally as well. And, and, and was, and, and, and gave a lot to IndieWire, but as I thought about it further and talked with colleagues and family and friends, I realized that I felt that the true mark of, of success and ultimately of pride, I think, in IndieWire would be the ability to pass on the baton and also that it would continue without me or without the founders. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the sign of longevity when you can step aside past the baton and it can continue to grow and I, th- I think IndieWire was ready for a next chapter and it was a great moment to to bring someone to, to for me to go in a different direction and also to bring someone else into the mix and I think Dana Harris um, as the editor-in-chief and general manager and James as the publisher James Israel who I mentioned earlier um, is it's just been in the right the right hands uh, and Thompson who who I had brought in um, as a blogger when I was there um, coming in as editor at large I mean it's just it's such a strong team and it was like the right group to to kind of take it to the next level mm-hmm. okay so now you're here yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned um, the analog component that you were kind of a, a, was a appealing appealing you made a reference before mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also so what was the idea that you what was the digital yeah. realm that you were going to uh, instill or or anyway bring to the film society i mean was it part of the actual films was it part of the just the online presence was it all the above comment it was a little bit of everything and 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 when Which i is met it, was with- a, physical magazine yeah i mean i when i when i sat down with the organization i met with the board president dan stern and a number of people involved with the organization other board members i i found that um when i met with the folks here i found that there was not only an appetite for exploring and embracing uh, digital opportunities for the organization there was an urgency the organization was a year away from opening the film center. It was an opportunity to engage and connect with a new audience or a bigger audience here in New York. And so I looked at, and we as a group looked at so many different areas of potential growth, some of which we're still exploring, but the initial areas that we started to explore were of course, social media building on what Amanda had laid the foundation 
uh, with here at the Film Society. Um, kind of scrapping and building a, a brand new website, mm-hmm. not only for the organization, but for film comment. Uh, the start, the, the beginnings of a, of, a, of a website for film comment. They had been doing some things online in some ways, but it was an opportunity to, to grow that as well. But also looking at everything the organization did digitally from things on the back end, uh, you know, ticketing systems and, oh, really? okay. and um, hmm. Google Drive and Google Apps internally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, was, it was looking at everything we do as an organization and exploring and really experimenting with how we could and how we might evolve an organization from its back-end systems to its promotional platforms to the programming itself. I didn't know it at the time and I took the job um, and it took a couple of years for us all here to learn that our chief projectionist um, who was here for 20 plus years, Don Shul, passed away a few years ago, had been recording on various formats of media um virtually virtually every conversation that's ever happened in the walter reed theater on stage gotcha um that's amazing so there's there's tapes people didn't know and hard drives and i mean i think it was just it was something he did more as a hobby ish it wasn't official in other words it wasn't official and it wasn't organized right other than within his own process sure so but think about and and now we're expressing that that collection of of content in many different ways um but the idea of taking what we're doing here at the film society the the conversation we had two nights ago with ricky and annie talking about reversing row on stage with kent jones and a panel of of activists and lawyers talking about um, a really uh, compelling film, a topic that's so related to what's going on in the world at this very moment, mm-hmm. and our ability to record and capture that conversation and share it with a much bigger audience. It was a full house on Monday night watching this screening mm-hmm. of a movie that was already on Netflix, actually. Uh, it went up on Netflix on Friday. But wow. we, we decided to show yeah. it on Monday. Packed. Sure. Um, more than the, so the the audience was full 268 people in the, in the theater but thousands more will potentially be able to watch and listen to that conversation when they discover the film on Netflix they they can they can come to the film society's website or go to our youtube channel or sign up for our podcast and listen to that conversation so oh so you you're you're posting these things now uh pretty much like re- immediately yeah, uh, and that was that. This is just one area that that sure. That it's a great. Example. When I came here, we talked about how we could express, how we could explore that whole archive, though uh, this incredible archive that Don was recording of all these Q and As, all the all those events. Um, that's an enormous pro- you're, uh, uh, digitizing uh, or converting or and uh, systemizing. Is that the way the, the word? Uh, right, you had. It's like this. Uh, there must and be thousands or hundreds, it, many hundreds it, it, of it's them. Still, it's still it's still a work in progress. Sure, I'm sure it is. It, it, so the one thing that I learned, I always thought about this organization, and I mentioned I started coming here when I think the Walter Reed was like two years old. I started coming here in 1993 when I moved to New York. 1994 wow. when I moved to New York, three uh-huh. years old. I always thought of it as a place that you 
would go and watch a movie, let's do a conversation, and then it was gone. So you had to be there. And it's that's, not. that's still part oh. of it. That's still a big part of it. Yeah. But the legacy that actually Don created and what we've continued now, what we've, what we've accelerated and expanded upon, is that, sure, this is an organization where you can experience on any given night a screening with a conversation. You can hang out with your friends after and have a glass of wine or some food at the cafe. Um, it's a place to connect in real life, mm-hmm. IRL. Um, but it's also a place that can create and share experiences and conversations and content and context with the world. And so we started um, taking, we started recording more aggressively um, within the past five years or so. Almost every, or basically every conversation that we do on stage here at Lincoln Center. And we started exploring and experimenting with how to share that content. So we started a podcast and every week we put up a conversation from the film society, either from the present or from the past. When Mike Nichols passed away, we dove into that collection that we have and we found on one of the tapes or hard drives buried deep in the projection booth, uh, a conversation that, that he and Elaine May had had on the stage of the Walter Reed. And when Mike Nichols passed away, we, we, digitize that and and put it on our podcast it was one of our most popular podcasts mm-hmm. um when uh paul thomas anderson came to the festival a few years ago and did an on cinema conversation with kent about the movies that inspire him and in, in alice tully hall um it sold out very very quickly 1100 seats we could have sold that sold out that house multiple times over uh, but instead, we recorded it, captured it, and put it on the... It was the very first podcast that we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's also still one of the most popular. Uh, and so now, thousands of people have attended that New York Film Festival conversation with Kent and Paul Thomas Anderson. So Pat, that's the idea. go to you, the YouTube channel, the Film Society YouTube channel, yeah. and to find this content you're talking about, or... It's also embedded on there's a, the, the Film Society website. There's, there's a page. There, there's a great guy, and thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's a great guy here who um, maybe in a future incarnation or uh, in a future edition of this podcast, you'll sit down with him. Sure. Um, a guy named Jordan Raup, mm-hmm. who himself, uh, Jordan himself is an entrepreneur. He started a website called The Film Stage. Um, he works with us here at the Film Society as our now our head of digital mm-hmm. content marketing. Um, when I started, I was director of digital strategy, and I since I've since become the deputy director of the organization. Um, but Jordan, who joined us a couple of years ago, leads all of our digital efforts now, mm-hmm. and he's being super aggressive about capturing everything um, that we do, both on stage and off. We're doing uh, our own podcasts and photo shoots and mm-hmm. interviews and conversations. Um, Film Comment has a podcast. Uh, you know, when when I started, um, we 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 began to explore the same kind of archive that we have on the on the live conversation on on, on the events. Mm-hmm. Um, the same kind of archive exists for Film Comment. We have more than fifty years of magazines, print magazines, and and editorial content, um, exploring every moment of of cinema and cinema culture for the past 50 plus years, um, much of it in printed form. So mm-hmm. we're, we're embarking on, on a future version of the film society that really 
uh, for lack of a better word, exploits all of this content, shares it. Mm-hmm. Um, Engages people with, yeah. with it, right? Yeah, yeah. And it would be a shame. Right. It would be, it would be a, a tremendous loss for film culture not to do something yeah. with all these conversations that have been recorded, all of this editorial content from Film Comment. And next year, the Film Society turns 50, and it's, it's an opportunity for us to start talking about that. Yeah, and think about it, like what a uh, kind of, um, maybe it will inspire so many other film societies that are out there, you know, to do the, to do the same if they're not already doing it. You know? We, we also see an opportunity to work with those many film societies and art houses around the country. There's mm-hmm. an incredible um, network of art houses and, and there's a, there's a terrific um, conference that happens. It's uh, right before the Sundance right. Film Festival called the Art House Convergence. Yeah. And first year I started going, um, there were definitely fewer than 100, maybe even fewer than 75 people that attended this conference. It's, it takes place in a, at a mountain resort not too far from Park City right before Sundance the week before. Um, this past year, there were hundreds, um, so many people that they've had to expand to the, the neighboring <laughs> mountain resort just to accommodate everyone. It's a giant yeah. convention of people that do what we do here, the Film Society, but all over the country um, at mom-and-pop owned movie theaters, single screen movie theaters, multiplexes, art houses, film societies, museums. Um, and it's become the gathering place for, for these, uh, for, for, for this, for this art house culture. Uh, and, um, we also think that now there's the technologies in place that we could actually collaborate and share actually working on an event, um, that right now that hopefully we'll be able to announce in the next couple weeks or month or so that um, might connect the, the the notion is to to say originate something from here at Lincoln Center but connect it with seven or eight dozen other art houses on the same night maybe a, a shared program or recording something here and sharing it with other art houses or or recording something somewhere else and sh- and taking it here so that infrastructure actually exists in a, in a technological way now where there's this there's this giant server in the cloud that um, already a lot of um, mm-hmm. distributors and 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 content creators are are putting their trailers and other material and then art houses can take it down and, right. and ingest it into their booth and screen it on a big screen oh wow um, okay that kind of thing has been done already a lot by for example the Metropolitan Opera um, they're recording live operas sure. and they, you can go to some theaters all over the place having screenings of those, uh, to, right. I think audiences that they couldn't before. Yeah. yeah and yeah. I think there are a number of us who, who imagine a scenario in which, um, art houses can have the same kind of content that's related to whether that's new films, old films, uh, one-offs conversations with filmmakers or others. Um, and doing more of that in a in a kind of network and kind of a coalition. Yeah, it's very exciting. I don't know if you're aware of this because it's the theater here at Lincoln Center. Mm-hmm. But as a side note, but uh, my you know son's mother is an actor. Mm-hmm. She's uh, was in this play Pipeline mm-hmm. last year. I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw that it was on the campus. I was. I didn't see it, but I remember seeing all of the yeah. So she the advertising. I heard very so good things about they, it. They filmed it like. A little bit sort of between a theatrical film and, uh-huh. and a staged, you know, the filming of a, of a uh-huh. play. 
and they're actually doing a limited kind of theatrical thing around well it's not just around the country but it's actually also in Europe too because mm-hmm. it's a you know the the subject matter is very very pertinent and very you know um, of its moment and um so they 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 went in and shot it and it's going to have these uh, screenings it's, so, and it's under the aegis of Lincoln Center Theater yeah no, it's not well i think it, you know it it's it's absolutely the direction that that this organization is exploring and so mm-hmm. many other organizations like ours mm-hmm. um look it's 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 a it's a in many ways it it's a really fragile moment for for culture generally but but for art house culture Especially. specifically yeah um it's it's difficult to do what we do um we're very fortunate here at Lincoln Center to be at Lincoln Center the the arguably one of the greatest the greatest arts campus and the fir- it was the first of its kind when it was founded in the early 60s this no- this notion of bringing together all the different art forms into one mm-hmm. centralized place um was a was a bold idea that was also an experiment and it meant bringing you know bringing the opera from a different part of New York, bringing mm-hmm. Juilliard from the Upper West Side, bringing all the different art forms that are represented on campus um, to this one central place, this one cultural hub. Um, now it's a very common thing. You see it in so many different cities around the world to have um, this kind of campus of, of arts institutions. But, but certainly in this country, when it happened here at Lincoln Center in the 60s, um, it was an experiment. It was a new idea. Right. And... Um, the arts are certainly challenged in this country and certainly at this moment, but um, in this country specifically, without proper funding from the government, we have to rely on individual philanthropists. Mm-hmm. We have to rely on ticket sales. We have to rely on corporate sponsors and other grants and gifts to sustain ourselves. And we're fortunate that we're at Lincoln Center, this great campus, this great arts campus. But it can be really challenging in a smaller city that doesn't have the resources or maybe doesn't have the tremendous um, access to individual philanthropists. Um, It makes it challenging. So anything we can do as a coalition of cultural institutions to support and sustain the art form of film um, especially at a time when um, there are so many different ways now to watch movies. Mm-hmm. Watching a movie on a big screen with an audience is not always the first choice for people to to watch a movie. Uh, it's still, thankfully, among the, the top choices, the top ways that people watch movies. Um, but a lot of my friends, certainly a lot of folks that uh, are younger watch movies in different ways on different size screens, not always in a big screen on a big screen with an audience, you know, with a hundred people next to you. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you might be on the subway. So, you know, watching it on your, your watch and then <laughs> you are standing next to or alongside hundreds of people. No, I, I that's true. Good point. <laughs> Sorry. But it, it's, it's, it, not it, watching it, it's though. interesting how cinema has become such an mm. individual experience. Um, right. Or a more private experience. Yeah, interesting. Right. Or yeah. much smaller 
communities of people, a few people, a couple friends, a family, a couple, you know, watching something, uh, whether it's on Netflix or on iTunes or on sure. Amazon. Right. Um, and I, I find that a lot of people I know are actually more voracious. They're watching more content than they ever have. Absolutely. In, in more places. Right. Maybe they're going to the movie theater less frequently. But for us, we're still, as a 50, nearly 50-year-old 50 organization at the Film Society, our our mission hasn't changed, and that's to, you know, um, support and and embrace the art and craft of cinema, um, but also provide that context. And so when we can record a conversation mm-hmm. between a filmmaker and one of our programmers and share that out with the world on some platform, we can still have that connection to an audience, even if they never watch a movie in our theater. Right. I mean, here, even though I know you, like you mentioned the film center, uh, where there is on any week, there's usually at least there's good two theatricals that are going on, on a typical week, right? Cause there's two theaters. However, in by and large, what the one thing that the film society does on a regular basis, is it, it eventizes many of the screenings here, certainly almost entirely at the Walter Reed because of yep. one-offs and, uh, or retros or mm-hmm. things like that. So, which is a reason why people would come to the theater because they can't, no matter what they put on, Filmstruck and Netflix or what have you, mm-hmm. they can't really get the same kind of experience of being in the same room and then maybe having a conversation in the lobby afterwards, as you said, or, or on the way home. I mean, to me, that's the beauty of the New York Film Festival. And, right. and yeah. that was this is what I discovered when I moved to New York in the mid-'90s was what exactly what you just said. You know, I was seeing a lot of movies that time on videotape or laser disc or whatever <laughs> um but it wasn't the same as going to the movie theater especially the ultimate eventizing mm-hmm. experience for this organization is the new york film festival it's 17 days long and it's just you know it's just non-stop it's a marathon and um that to me is something unique and special and a terrific opportunity we try to create during the festival or during one of the other dozen festivals we do or series we do or first runs, as you mentioned, around the year or, or one-off sneak previews and special events. We try to really think about that experience of that, that, that event that's more than just the movie. The movie is the center of the experience. We want to have the best projection, the best sound, the best experience for an audience. But what else can we do around that? to facilitate not only an engagement with that artist or with a, with a critic or a curator to talk about that art, um, but also to just facilitate and give people a chance to connect with each other, whether that's at a party or reception, a pre-conversation or casual drinks after in our cafe. Um, to me, that's what enriches the whole mm-hmm. experience. Absolutely. Oh, for sure. Uh, and, you know, people that are with, listening and that are in the New York City area and love mm-hmm. Art House and independent film should definitely take the opportunity at this point to subscribe to the Film Society's news, uh, excuse me, uh, email, get on their, their newsletter email list because all the information is going to be there. There's also, uh, I mean, there's a number of ways to get yeah. to all be kept up to date about all things that are going on here we, throughout we, the year. We really try to create as many different ways and try to be on as many different platforms so that audience, yeah. cause audiences can connect with us in whatever way they feel appropriate. And the Twitter feed. You can follow Facebook. us on Twitter, right. Facebook, Instagram, sign up for the various newsletters you mentioned, whether that's for the Film Society at filmlink.org or filmcomment.com. We have 
two different apps, one for the magazine and one for Film Society. We have um, two different podcasts. So, I mean, there's there's a bunch of different platforms and channels mm-hmm. and ways in which we connect with an audience. Um, when I started here, again, we were we were very we were interested as an organization in exploring, but there was a a more analog culture culture and and rooted and, in the, and in approach the, right and and, uh, and in some ways it was very um hands-on and very much individual to individual the best example i can i can give because this is how i used to attend the festival today when you attend the festival you go online on the website and choose all your tickets and you can um, be alerted to new tickets being put on sale immediately via twitter whenever we put more tickets on sale we're able to release tickets that that were being held uh by some of our members or uh studio may give back some tickets uh to be to be sold to the public that they aren't going to use and we'll immediately do an alert on twitter and say tickets are being released today for x y and z or sometimes we'll even announce um special programs or surprise programs on social media uh and people can act very quickly and they can be engaged with us throughout the day and throughout the festival but when i started going to this festival the way you attended uh was you took a blank check that you filled out everywhere except for the amount Mm -hmm. and you took a piece of paper and you checked off the movies you wanted to buy tickets to and you put all that in an envelope with your blank check and you mailed it to the film society and then a few weeks later they would fill out the amount that you were being charged and they would send you your tickets back. Are you serious? I don't remember that. <laughs> that was how that was how I bought tickets wow. to the film festival. I mailed I, I mailed the Film Society of Lincoln Center a blank check. Um, it's incredible. And yeah. things are different, very different now. But when I talk about this being an analog organization, that's how ticketing and package fulfillment and ticket sales for the festival happened for a very long time. Do you accept still accept checks, personal uh. checks? <laughs> um, but I. I I, I, you know, it was a seminal moment. I, I remember actually, and this has, has got to be in the early '90s. Was and I was, I believe, still working in the music industry, perhaps. But is that I remember just deciding I'm going to buy. Something. I would every year the the New York Times would have this big two page, like you know, ad of all when they would announce all the films at the New York Film Festival, and I loved just pouring through it, and I always wanted it like like be somebody i always would afford to just go to everything and one year i guess i was ahead of the game financially because <laughs> i bought two blocks it was i bought two set two pairs of tickets for everything for like uh one one of the blocks i guess uh and so i had tickets i must have come here and picked up i don't remember but i i, I assume i must have come here to the box office and and just done it there i don't remember how it happened anymore but i took all my friends and my parents to screenings that year and had the time of my life going to just, just, and I didn't know a lot of the filmmakers. Mm-hmm. I knew some of them, but I was introduced to so many people. I believe now that I'm thinking about it, this really probably played an, an instrumental role in, in, in my kind of getting really, you know, gravitating towards, yeah. towards what I'm doing, you know, as I think back about it, because I, I didn't really attend, I don't think again, sit till, Mark Rabinowitz, yeah. who you've mentioned, you know, he sort of gave me uh, an opportunity just to help, like, blog for him because I was uh, looking to kind of... Remember, that's how I met you. Yeah, exactly. And so, and by the way, he just texted me uh, yesterday, I think, 
or the day before, saying he's, he's coming. Yeah, up. he'll be here next week. He's going to be here for opening night. I the rabbi returns. <laughs> rabbi returns. So hopefully, it'll be a bit of a reunion for you. Well, for you guys certainly, absolutely, and, and myself. So I have my own connections, and and then I found myself, by the way, this year. I don't know if you're familiar, but I was on the screening committee. That's right. I so, did know that. Thank yeah. You. So it. Yeah. Well, I watched a hundred shorts, so I could get a film badge, <laughs> which I already had. Was able to get from being well. Impressed. Now you're but now I, you're now you're even more of a of an insider. You can <laughs> well, watch, I really watch tons of movies. I hope, but I mean, you know, I, I I it's funny because you I did the same thing early on. My first New York Film Festival was I just I didn't even know. Sure, the the the, the movie that I most remember is my first New York Film Festival experience. It was the very first movie I saw at the festival. It was Pulp Fiction, the year that oh it opened the festival, wow. nineteen ninety four, yeah. and that was you know certainly high profile, memorable, a notable screening, a notable yeah movie. But um, but I also just took a chance on a bunch of other movies, uh, and I didn't have a lot of money. I just moved to New York. I had a I had a job at ABC Television. I was in my twenties, um, but I took a risk. I took a chance. Um, I know, and we know here at the Film Society how it can be expensive to to sustain a movie addiction. Um, so one of the things we've done in the last now six years. Um, since opening the film center is we do um, a number of free events. Um, attending a film festival should not um, break your should, wallet, should break not, your bank account. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, we have amazing um, donors and members and philanthropists who support this organization and have the resources to do so, but we want the festival to be accessible to as many different audiences right. as possible. So we do Every night, free events at the film festival, talks, panels, conversations. Um, we'll right. release tickets. We hold back tickets and we'll release tickets on the day of uh, for rush, for half price. Um, so folks just need to sign up for our newsletter and, and, our, and all of our all See, the, the Twitter platforms. feed, as you mentioned. Uh, and, and we'll release information yeah. on that stuff. But that was also a big change uh, for this organization to really, when we had the space to do so, to just start doing more things start yeah. doing more events that that are free and that are open to the public um we're doing our one of our we've had we've had screenings off campus before um but we're doing our very first um screening in harlem uh with barry jenkins new film if beale mm-hmm. street could talk and the very first screening of that film will be at the apollo um and it and it's going to be a great night um with barry and having his film the very first screening of the of his of his film at the New York Film Festival will actually be off campus and at, at the Apollo. Is that a first? Um, I don't remember that happening before. We haven't we haven't ever done anything at at, at during the festival uh, that I know of at the Apollo. We didn't we did an event with the Apollo a few years ago. Um, there was a documentary um, about Nina Simone that was on Netflix. Oh, yeah. What happened, Miss um, Simone? What happened, Miss Simone? Mm-hmm. And we did a premiere of that event mm-hmm. of that film with uh, with Netflix up at the Apollo, and. This year, with with Barry's film, and given the subject matter, and given that it was much of it was shot in Harlem, um, it was just such a perfect opportunity to take the movie and premiere it. When's that? Uh, by the way, it'll be on October 9th. October 9th, Okay. Um, uh, well, well, since we're talking, as we wind down, because I know you yeah. probably have some things to do <laughs> uh, or get to. Do you want to just uh, mention a few more? Things you mentioned some free panels, and I've been to some of those. And they're, yeah. by the way, I mean every bit as fun and interesting as uh, the paid events. So you know, people really should look through those. And, and there's, uh, we haven't even announced, fantastic. but by the time this is um, is on, by the time this podcast is up, sometime in we late probably October, we'll have we'll have announced them. But um, looking on the wall 
behind you on the on the whiteboard. Um, oh wow. My former IndieWire colleague, Brian Brooks, who's probably sitting outside the door of this office waiting to come in and meet with me after we're done, um, is organizing the talks. And we've got a terrific selection of free talks that will happen uh, during the festival this year. Um, Frederick Wiseman is doing a free talk on October 1st. Um, The artist, JR... And uh, as the one who is in uh, Faces Places, yeah, uh-huh. and, and, and Ed, cinematographer Ed Lockman, who's a guest um, on the show, they've both been on the show actually. They've actually. collaborated this year to create the film festival's poster, mm-hmm. which hasn't been announced or revealed yet, but that's coming soon. Morgan, uh, and they'll be doing a talk. Morgan Neville, the documentary filmmaker. We've also got panels, a documentary panel with a number of the doc filmmakers. We've got a panel we're doing with the Producers Guild, with the Writers Guild, with New York Women in Film and Television, uh, a panel on costume design. Um, Film Comment is doing uh, two or three panels uh, throughout the festival. So, um, I mean, these are just some of the free events that you'll right. see happening during the festival. I won't mention those ones on the bottom there that says under the possibilities. Yeah, I, I won't, some of those I may or may not be happening. <laughs> and there's one there that we haven't even announced yet as well. So for a movie we haven't announced yet. But um, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it, for us, it's just having... Having a bigger footprint at Lincoln Center, having the, the mm-hmm. Walter Reed and, and everything on this side of the street, but then also the other theaters across the street, just gives us an opportunity to play mm-hmm. even more, get the opportunity to do even more, mm-hmm. and gives us a chance to, to, to share some of the movies and the people that are going to be in town for, for you know, almost three weeks with the city, with New York. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked so long, I mean, I'm not going to start asking you to talk about individual films i mean it's it's you know it's the best of the a world cinema yeah. we could say and under i mean uh you have a narrative films doc a documentary whole whole portion of the of the festival just on brand new documentaries um by some of the best of the documentary community uh convergence mm-hmm. right which is uh convergence has it has really become one of the most exciting aspects of the festival yeah. and this year we've got a full uh, VR arcade, uh, and that'll be the. Th- it used to be the first weekend of the festival. This year, it's the third weekend of the festival, um, and it's a whole weekend of of VR and immersive storytelling. Really great stuff. Um, on the second weekend, we've got projections, which is our more experimental and avant garde right. film program. <clears throat> but much of the lineup really stretches the the full span of the seventeen days. Whether that's the main slate about 30 films this year or the documentary program mm-hmm. or some of the special events you mentioned i mean my personal favorite movie probably my favorite movie of the year but i still have more to see as always yeah uh is a movie called roma which um is directed by alfonso cuaron he's going to do a conversation the day after the screening the, the centerpiece screening is on october 5th and he's going to do a conversation with kent jones on the 6th mm-hmm. um it's just it's one of the best movies i've seen in a really long time great and it's a it's it, even though it's a Netflix movie, even though so many people will see it on Netflix when it when it yeah, but, when it airs, I think it's it it'll be great yeah. on Netflix. It'll be a special and memorable experience to see it on a big screen, and if uh, with Quaron and with him person. there, and, yeah. and just just the experience of the way he shot it. It's it's in black and white, but in widescreen format, um, with just an exceptional attention to the details of the sound alone. Um, seeing it on a big screen with an audience uh, will be a memorable and kind of one-time only experience for this movie that will have a small theatrical life, but will will reach audiences around the world once it's on Netflix. So um, it, it's going to be a great way to, to experience that movie, and it's a great movie. Uh, just because you mentioned it's the centerpiece 
Yes. Uh, well, let's talk just about opening night and closing night films as well. Yeah. I mean, the opening night is um, is a movie by Yorgos Lanthimos called The Favorite. Right. Um, it's a twisted kind of tale of royal intrigue. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also one of my favorite movies of the year. Maybe it's number two. Um, <laughs> okay. It's just wickedly funny. Olivia Coleman is a revelation to me. I was familiar with her, but really this movie just... Um, this her role as the queen is just stunning. Wow, uh, Rachel Weisz, Emma Stone. Um, it's it's dark and funny, like any Yorgos Lanthimos movie. But mm-hmm. it's also uh, mm-hmm. it's also accessible and and really entertaining. Great. Um, on closing night, Julian Schnabel is back at the festival with At Eternity's Gate, and you watch. I watched this movie and. It's Willem Dafoe playing Vincent Van Gogh. Van Gogh and Van Gogh for Van some Gogh. of my listeners. <laughs> I watched this movie and I and I had to pause for a moment and remember whether Willem Dafoe had ever played Vincent Van Gogh because it's such a it's such a great performance that you almost think you've seen it before. Like they it mm. just he embodies this character. He looks it's like so him. familiar. Feeling. Yeah, it's mm. so familiar, and he did such a great job. The two of them were collaborating. I remember when uh, when Willem was here, sometime in the past year, he was here um, uh, with Florida Project after the festival, and he was like, he had said to me, he's like, oh yeah, I'm going away for the weekend to the south of France. I'm working on this movie with Julian Schnabel, and like I was intrigued. He's like, yeah, I've been flying out there every so often just to, to work with Julian. We're doing this movie about Vincent Van Gogh. And he didn't really, he was very humble and didn't go into much detail. But but they were just getting together in the south of France. It's beautifully shot in the south of France um, in places where Van Gogh lived and worked. And they've just kind of, they immerse you in this world, his world, his life, and his struggles. His struggles near the end of his life. Uh, it's really, it's a beautiful movie, and and I think it's going to play really well. It played in Venice, uh, but I think it's going to play really well here. Tickets are obviously available. Tickets are on sale. You go to New York, are... Festi- New, uh, New York Film Festival. Well, Google New York Film Festival. Filmlink.org slash NYFF. More tickets okay. will be released uh, before, during, and at the end of the festival. We actually will add, we haven't announced yet, we're adding a bunch of screenings of some of the most popular and, and films that have sold the best. We'll bring back Oh, for an additional third screen yeah, or the what final happened? two days of the festival oh, this great. year. Oh, is that new too? Or is that uh, this year, yeah. We've expanding it to two days. Uh, okay. So the final Saturday and Sunday will we'll all be repeat screenings of films from the festival. All right. Thank you. Yeah. This was fantastic. Thank you, Adam. Okay. I'll see you in eight years. Okay. Ruiz Palacios's second feature film following Gueros. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I had a uh, interview with uh, uh, with uh, Alonzo some years ago for Gueros. And I, I initially recorded it. I recorded it, another podcast that I was doing for Kino Lorber, the distributor. And then I was going to, I was allowed as part of that agreement to also post the show on my podcast. Why not? More the merrier. 
It never happened, though, and I don't know why. So I finally put up both segments on YouTube, the last interview about Gueros and this current one about Museo. So they've been on YouTube, but now here it is. This is uh, officially on my podcast, my conversation with the lovely, lovely, and very talented, amazing director. It's called Museo, and it stars Gael Garcia Bernal, and it is in theaters around the country at the moment. Uh, here, he, Here's Alonzo on Film Wax Radio. Objetos tan importantes y valiosos como los antes mencionados han sido sustraídos por manos criminales. El Instituto Nacional de Antropología e Historia alerta contra estos vándalos enemigos de su historia y de su herencia. Kino Lorber. Do you remember that? Yes, Because I just remembered today myself. I was producing uh, their uh, this podcast for them. So, yeah, kind of had a freelance kind of gig there doing the, their podcast. And, um, and it escaped my memory, even though, of course, I remember very well seeing Gueros and enjoying it. And then uh, I was like, wait a minute, something's... <laughs> some some of my synapses were tingling. So did you see this one? Yes, of course. Oh. Yeah. Are you still working for Kino Lorber? No, they they just. Did you have something on my? Uh, no, I was just gonna step out and come back. Okay. Oh. Okay. In like twenty minutes. Yeah, that's great. That should do. Yeah. Well, I'm still very good. I have a good relationship, and I'm and I I do uh, I don't know my I've done I've done do different things for them on occasion. Like um, I did um recently uh. They took a podcast of my own, mm. and they're putting it on their D- a DVD okay. as like a bonus thing. Cool. And then I also sometimes will, they'll have me go to the studio, audio, uh, to, uh, like to a post house and uh-huh. do a uh, the audio co- the director's audio commentary. How oh, great! Okay. And and work with the audio with them, or sometimes ask the questions and talk with them, or sometimes just be there in case you know that kind of stuff. Cool. So so I still still. Uh, do some things with Kino. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're still terrific, yeah. terrific place. Yeah. You know, who knows? Maybe they'll do the the American DVD or I don't know. Who I, knows? I, I That's don't, in the future. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, they they we reached out to them and they they kind of mm-hmm. um they didn't respond right away because we had a thing with YouTube that YouTube oh. had bought the rights I for SVOD anyway. Yeah, so, no, I get it. So yeah. I don't know. I hope. I hope so because I really like them, and I, yeah. I think they do a really good job in curating mm-hmm. their videos. Yeah. Yeah. How's it going? Good. Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. yeah. We had a good, really good turnout yesterday at the Angelic, and apparently it's sold out for today and tomorrow oh, as well. Really? So. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it's also at the. Uh, it's at the Angelic landmark and at the yeah. landmark at West Fifty Seventh Street, all that's, the way west. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Here in New York, and um, off the top of your head, I mean, well. 
Gabrielle was in the room, I could have asked, but is it playing uh, in other cities in the States yet? Yeah, it, not yet. It'll play mm-hmm. next week. It's playing at um, in D.C. Uh-huh. It'll be there for a week or... And then if it, you know, if it yeah. performs well, and it'll sure. extend. And then it's going to Coral Gable oh. Cinema. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've heard of that. And then, it, and then it'll, it's going to, the, after the L.A. Film Festival, where mm-hmm. it, you know, it's screening there, and then it's going to have a run at the Lemley in, in Los Angeles. All right, so you're getting a nice yeah, bit it, of... Uh, it's starting play. there, and then we'll, we'll see where it yeah, goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you're listening, help make this happen. Help yes. make it, help, <laughs> help bring Alonso's film museo yeah to a large audience it's it's i I did enjoy very much and uh it's um uh, yeah it was a very uh interesting interesting tone to this film yeah Mm. you know it's uh it's certainly dramatic but there's moments uh, all sorts of moments in it which Mm -hmm. kind of uh, made you feel that sometimes it's verging on even comedy sometimes on you know, it has again that magical realism moments in it, a few mm-hmm. like that. But uh, it's since it is based on actual events about a uh, heist mm. that these two young f- friends committed it w- in '85, right? Yeah. Uh, how concerned were you with that? That representing the reality of that <clears throat> in the story? Does that matter that much to you, especially with this much distance? Well. It, it it mattered at first, <laughs> and then less and less as we as we we progressed in the writing of the script. Yeah, um, the first drafts of the script, the, the the first draft that Manuel had written by himself, Manuel Alcala. This w- is your writing partner. He's my writing project. partner on on this film. Yeah, mm-hmm. he he. It, it was much closer to the facts, and then and then. He he offered me to direct the film, and I, you know, I, I wasn't intending on doing um, something that I hadn't written myself. But then this story, he, you know, I remembered when it happened vaguely. Oh, you so did? I was, yeah, because I was I was very young. So, sure. <laughs> in, in still in uh, grammar school, as we yeah, call it. yeah. So I just had a vague memory, but then when I started, mm-hmm. you know, when he told me the whole story and started. Mm-hmm finding out again what what had happened it was mm. you know i couldn't let it go it was it was a fascinating story yeah so um but but it then we find we found that as we were writing the truer that we tried to be to the actual facts the the less the film seemed to work as a narrative you know um how so uh, well i mean for for one thing the real story takes place in I mean, from the time they 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 stole the pieces to when they got caught, it was almost four years. I uh, see. Practical things for a film, it just doesn't. Yeah, and work we tried. Right. We did have these huge ellipses, but then it was just like time that nothing much happened. Right. And and the only interesting bit seemed to be like sit in a closet. It doesn't make for a great film. Yeah, <laughs> it is. They were kept in a closet. I know. And, I read. Yeah. Um, so so yeah. The, like the only interesting bits were like the heist. Mm-hmm. And then when they got caught, and in the middle, it was like not much. Yeah. So we kind of just decided to. We started off by killing characters, you know, like <laughs> the the brother of this guy who who had something to do in the thing. We kind of eliminated him, and then eliminate yes. that person and that. And, and once we started killing people off and and uh, realizing that nothing bad happened, yeah, then we kind of 
became confident you know yeah. that the, the way to go was just like really go fiction all the way right know? it makes sense even then when you're making up your own story you run into logistical problems or you know once you start fleshing them out you realize this is not going to work yeah um, exactly. cinematically or however you want to describe it yeah so with a real event you know it's it's even more mm. like can be more uh, um, tricky you yeah know? Interesting, but Akala didn't mind he, your your writing partner. He didn't mind. No, because I mean, I'm, also that that was my condition to to come into oh, the I film see. that right. that we rewrite it together. And okay. that, I yeah. mean, I I I couldn't see myself directing something that I don't. Mm-hmm. I have to be involved in the writing for for me to get really interested in the in the film. You know? Right. Yeah. When I said, by the way, before there was a little, com- there's not much comedy to it necessarily, but there's some moments, mm. you know, like his relationship with his sister, uh, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. There's there's some moments. Let's talk about, of course, that uh, Gael Garcia Bernal is the uh, plays the lead the is lead. the lead, mm-hmm. uh, and then um, and then you have Leonardo Ortiz Gris. Is that did I get his name right? Ortiz Gris. Ortiz Gris, yeah. Or- Ortiz Gris, that yeah. makes more sense. Plays uh, Leonardo Ortiz Gris. Is the other friend. They're, yeah. They're old friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's fantastic. He was in your earlier film, Gueros. Yeah, he was in Gueros. Yeah, yeah he, and the two have an interesting relationship, and, you know, he's... You can tell me the name of the character, because I can't remember Leonardo's character is... Wilson, yeah, yeah. or Benjamin. Oh, Wilson, of yeah. course. Right, yeah. uh, right. Benjamin. Yeah. Benjamin. <laughs> How could I forget? Is definitely... Seems to have limited mental, yeah. <laughs> sort of a certain limit. He's somewhat limited, but yeah. he's he's he loves his friend, but yeah. um, and the two are very close, Aww. obviously. But he he definitely is he's weak. There's yeah. a weakness that's uh, central in his character, right? Yeah. Well, I we, guess you could argue that. For both. Yeah, absolutely. No, we we we. I mean, we we designed it like that. We we. I mean, again, nothing to do with the real characters. Mm-hmm. When we were writing, we we said, "Well, it, it just kind of led us into this th- these reflections on friendship and how they're built on power struggles as well." And mm-hmm. and and it just kind of made it charming to to make him simple-minded, you know. Like we, we decided in our heads, Wilson. We said, well, "Let's just imagine that he's nine mm-hmm. or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. m- mentally." And he just kind of and and it was he became a really endearing character and lots of fun, um, yeah. There's just some things that you I don't know I really don't know where that came from. It just mm-hmm. kind of seemed to work once we decided he'll be he'll be simple, you know, like kind of naive and and uh, sure. right slow and 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 it just made him more charming and lovable and you kind of felt for him and absolutely and the way his friend kind of abused him you know in a way yeah, well at certain points i guess you could uh, argue i guess yeah. that it kind of comes pretty close to that but he's also you know when you're given the power in the yeah. type a, you know it's hard not to yeah. resent it at some degree to some degree because you're pulling along this other person sometimes yeah so it gets it is challenging you know Anyway, the, we should, I should mention, uh, just by way of a synopsis, though, that they end up robbing this uh, archaeological museum. Yeah, of, the, of the National Museum. Anthropology Museum. In Mexico City. And, right? Yes, yeah. in Mexico City. Yeah. And they do it in the sort of the dead of night, you know, because I think, uh, right, his character, Gail's character, was was there on some, some freelance job or something? Yeah. Was it that, like he that, was helping with... Uh, 
he was a photographer's assistant that that actually did come from yeah. the from the real story that he he worked as an assistant to a photographer on the museum they were taking photographs of all the pieces right. that, um and so he got to he spent like a whole summer there and he right. and he he saw how they took them out of their cases and right. so he and I, he was able to case the place as well even yeah. even passively although maybe it was building up in his mind yeah. already that he could see i don't know if he could see how poorly it was guarded because <laughs> because yeah. they it was yeah yeah and there was no uh, alarm system mm-hmm. i mean that's crazy you think about a museum even certainly even in the 80s uh, yeah. every museum uh yeah. was uh had a, at least had a uh, although if there are guards walking around perhaps they just lock the door and yeah well maybe th- they don't put there's one interesting system. thing about that that Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when when we were already in pre-production and scouting the film, we we went several, many many times to the to the museum, mm-hmm. which, by the way, you know, for yeah. those who don't know it and who haven't been, in it, I mean, it's a, a great place for me. It it like asks nothing of the Louvre or the Met or the British Museum. It, it's it's this. Um, it was built in 1964, and it houses the largest collection of pre-Hispanic art. Uh, it was made by architect Ramirez Vasquez, this mm-hmm. famous mm-hmm. Um, architect, me- Mexican architect who did the Aztec Stadium, another uh, great monument. Um, and and so when when we were scouting for this place and you know going over and over to to the Anthropology Museum, the director told us he said, well. A place like this, we have improved, of course, the the security systems. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, they've they've been updated and and everything. But he said, but still, how can you guard a place against? You know, it ha- daily it has between between three and fifteen thousand visitors. You mm-hmm. know, like it's the numbers go range between that. Yeah, he says, how can you? He said, "How can you guard it against that amount of people?" He said, "You can't." And the 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 only way is that these places depend on trust. You know, there's a like a social pact mm-hmm. between the institution and the people. It's up to the citizens to look after it. And and he said, and "That's how it's always survived." Interesting. There's there. Uh, he said, "Only once have they graffitied." Um, the walls of the museum, like, and it happened in two thousand something. Um, it didn't happen in all. Until so like forty years later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it relies on this kind of social contract, you know. Um, right. Yeah. There's no way to guard, and it's true. There, there's no way to to look after it except if everyone looks after it, which is kind of also put. Um, I, I think that's also what's interesting about that story that that it kind of it it, it puts. It put peop- people's eyes on on that and how vulnerable it was, and how how mm-hmm. vulnerable our, our our relationship with history is, and how how careless we can be as as Mexicans of that. Hmm. But in a surprise turn, they let you film, shoot, at least some of the film, no, yeah. the museum, which is a great shows a great amount of. Uh, uh, I mean, if it was a person, it would show a great amount of uh, not courage necessarily, but uh, self-esteem or something. Because yeah. 
you know, you don't you, here they are. They were um, showed they were fallible. Mm -hmm. They were you know certainly uh, uh, breached. Yeah, that trust you described, the social tr uh, pact, this trust that was uh, yeah was breached, and uh, yet they're still willing to l let the story be told. Yeah. And, and be part of the cast, in a way. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't easy. It was a, a labor of, like, four years. Oh, of, it really? Took, yeah, it took, like, four years to convince the museum of, of you know, the, to let us film there. Because they don't, like, as a policy, in they don't first, let yeah. uh, film... Uh, they, they don't allow uh, uh, filming inside the museum. So the, they... At first, they said no, and we insisted, and we we made this like really long campaign of like presenting them with all the benefits that it had until they understood that the film was also going to be part of the memory of the museum. You know, it it, mm -hmm. it also I mean the film itself celebrates the the existence of this museum, the creation, and and this event is part of its story now, you know? The, right. These guys are part sure. of the story. People came to see the empty cases. Yeah. Yeah, that which was... Which kind of is an extension of that pact again, in a way, because, you know, it's almost like taking this uh, solemnity to mm -hmm. the fact that they were stolen and, you know, like going to pay uh, respect to that. Well... In a way, like showing, like yeah. we care so much about that the breach was made in this contract. You know what I mean? So that they would go look at an empty thing. I mean, I don't think it was just sensationalist yeah. thing. I don't know. I, I mean, I, I to, it's very to, to be honest, I, I did read it as, as, um, as sensationalism. And, you and, did? And, I didn't. And, <laughs> but you know, you Open never to know. interpretation. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean I, I, I remember seeing the pictures of, of. Um, of the queues that formed after the museum reopened mm -hmm. in like February or, or something after after the after cause, the robbery yeah because the robbery ha happened on Christmas right yeah. which explains part by the way not just it wasn't just a bad security but yeah they were celebrating that night <laughs> apparently a little too much yeah no I mean the, the these guys were smart in how they did it you know yeah um, um, not but much yeah that the, <laughs> exactly <laughs> but the the how they the, the, these photographs of people queuing up to see the empty cases. I remember when I when I saw them, they made me really sad. Just to just to, just to think that people, you know, it spoke to me like about Mexico. That we'd much rather see that than go and see the pieces themselves. You know that there's something about the thrill of it and about the yeah right voyeurism of it. That, I see. That, Interesting. I interpreted it yeah. so differently. In the, I just figured that people would make a pilgrimage there in a way to express. But the, that's kind of counting in that that they were they were going before, before that, yeah. and really valued this this gift of this museum. Yeah. You know, I kind of took that because the way you portrayed the family, yeah, uh, and the response of the father. Yeah. Of Brent, uh, okay. So when the robbery happens the next day or the days following, we see Juan, who still lives with his family, mm. uh, his parents' house. And uh, by the way, his father is played by the great Alfredo Castro, Castro who yeah. is, um, you know, uh, wonderful, wonderful and been in several uh, 
uh, of Pablo Lorraine's films, including yeah. uh, Tony Manero and uh, mm-hmm. Postmortem, some great films. And The Club. Did you see The Club? And the cl- I did yeah. see The Club. He was great in The Club. Yeah. He's a great actor. Yeah. Um, and and so, so he, uh, Alfredo's character, the father, uh, is really outraged. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and really kind of has a strong, really strong reaction to this breach against his country. And mm-hmm. A sense of real nationalism yeah. comes through, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's... Uh, um, anyway, I was yeah. saying that because he was living with his folks, right? And, yeah. Oh, right, and the whole dynamic there. So I felt like this museum really represents so much, and the artwork, the, the, mm-hmm. the archaeological history of the countries. It's a, there's a nationalist... A nationalistic feeling about it, like a, yeah. pri- a pride. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think both things are are simultaneously true. There, there is a in part of a, the population a, a real sense of pride and and um, uh, respect towards our past and our heritage. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I think there's all like in in mass, we are like a. a we can we can be a frivolous people you know uh, sure. that who who who's just seeking thrills and and not paying attention to what really matters you know well, and I mean, and it just that's not exclusive to mexico no as i was well. going to say i think like, i think if you go to any museum here the majority <laughs> of the people there are not from america yeah <laughs> true i don't know yeah. i could be wrong uh, they're, they're mostly, yeah, no, you're probably right. Maybe they're mostly Mexicans. <laughs> <laughs> well, a museo is, again, it's playing at the um, Angelica and yeah. at the uh, Landmark at uh, 57 West mm-hmm. here in New York City. Uh, so everybody should go to, go check it out. Uh, great filmmaker, Alonzo Ruiz Palacios. Mm-hmm. I should apologize. There's no way where I expect any of your, your, your fellow countrymen to pay for a wall. Uh, and we just want to make that clear <laughs> that that uh, quite the opposite. We won't pay uh, for it. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're I was going to say if you're considering, please stop because it's just uh, there will probably. I'm 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 hoping in the coming months uh, there'll be even less of a reason to have to worry about a wall. Yeah. But uh, no, I the Mexican films continue to really be a, one of the great imports, as I tweeted earlier today. Yeah. You know, and. Uh, what uh, so this is, is this your second feature? No, you made a feature before. This is my second feature. It is your second feature. Yeah. You made shorts, I guess. I've made shorts, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. amazing how uh, yeah. quickly you're <laughs> <laughs> grown into kind of like an international filmmaker. Or and you and and uh, the festivals resu- the re- festival responses uh, have been fantastic. Yeah, well, really like a festival favorite. Also. <laughs> it's quite a uh, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been lucky that that. Mm-hmm. We've had we've had good good response and yeah people, luck people seem is it luck uh, probably yeah <laughs> I mean I I, I I bet that plays into it as well for sure mm-hmm. wow well, yeah. <laughs> do you have another thing that you're, you're kind of getting yeah I'm working on uh, on another film mm-hmm. I'm actually I mean I'm writing and rewriting right now and it's a film that it's um, Mexican and American as well. It's oh. it's a film that's it's about Mexican cooks set in in New York working in a New York kitchen. Oh great! Well, I like the I like that um, relationship and yeah. The more the better. The more the <laughs> more the more interaction. The more of the relationship Mexico and Ameri- and uh, the states have. Yeah. The better I think you know. Well, pushback. 
cultural yeah. has to come from the cult you know the cultural and the arts the culture and the arts it always does right yeah yeah but i had a i really loved uh museo and um thank you you're welcome and i hope it uh does get a, a real audience here mm. you know i'll do my best myself to, to, thank to, you. to spread the word about it and uh and let's do this again uh the next time around all right you know sure i look do. forward to that sure will. thank you thanks sir yeah does it thank you for listening uh we'll be back in a few days actually with a new episode with the uh talented fabulous melanie mayron who many people may remember as an actor from 30 something and many films television shows she's a director too she's new films called snapshots starring piper laurie and brooke adams and it's a moving dramatic film also very excited to present my conversation with author Peter Biskind. Uh, he's written many books about movies, including Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. He has a new book. It's called "If the It's called The Sky Is Falling," and it's currently available right now. You can read it. And uh, I talk to Peter on the next episode of the podcast. So make sure you tune in. Take care of yourselves and the ones you love. Until next time, this is your host, Adam Shartop. The name of the show is Film Wax Radio. Take care. Broken lines, broken strings.